0: Well, take your Bibles and turn to Hosea chapter 11. And uh, we, were, we were beginning the home stretch here tonight, um, moving into the final section of this uh, very important Old Testament prophecy. But this past week, I had a uh, run in with one of our kids in a public place. That ever happened to you, parents? No. Never, right? Well, I had made a decision that they didn't like, and rather than just submitting to my decision and moving on, they proceeded to argue with me about it in front of other people. And I reminded them that the Bible says children are to obey their parents because it's right, not because you think they're right. Important little principle, right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right, not because you think it's right, not because you agree with their decisions. You like their decisions, you just obey because it's right, it honors God. Well, the complaining and protesting continued to the point that I felt I had to pull that child away from the event that they were a part of at the time and made them sit in the car by themselves. At that point, they were quick to confess their disobedience and (laughs) disrespect and sought my forgiveness, which I was very thankful for, and I told them that of course I forgave them. But that I needed to also consider what consequences would be appropriate for their sinful actions. And so I left them in the car and I walked away for the next few minutes to figure out what I should do. And uh, I knew that they had really, really been looking forward to staying at this event and hanging out with their friends. And there was part of me that really, really wanted them to be able to do that because I love my kids. And I want them to enjoy themselves as much as possible. But there was also a part of me that knew I had to discipline them for refusing to obey me right away with the right attitude, which is the standard in our house, right? You obey right away with the right attitude. And so my heart was troubled. My heart was torn as I kind of paced around in that parking lot for a few minutes, wrestling over what I should do with my disobedient child. Should I let them stay and have a good time with their friends, or should I make them come home as punishment for their sin? Should mercy prevail, or should justice prevail? And so I went back and forth, anguishing in my heart, like I'm sure all of you parents have done many times before. And I tell you that story because from a human perspective, I believe that God experiences A similar anguish in his heart when he wrestles over what to do when his children sin against him. And the next chapter that we're going to look at in Hosea proves that point. Derek Kidner, who is one of my favorite Old Testament commentators, said this, this chapter is one of the boldest in the Old Testament, indeed, in the whole Bible, and exposing to us the mind and heart of God in human terms. And I think that's an important phrase, that this exposes to us the mind and heart of God in human terms. And and granted, we need to be extremely careful whenever we think or talk about God in human terms. In other words, when we compare God to us, We know the psalmist chided uh, his readers in Psalm 50, verse 21. He said, said, uh, speaking as for God, you thought that I was just like you. I'll reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. In other words, God says, listen, your problem with me is you thought I was too much like you. And you can't compare me to you, right? Because... I'm God and you're not, and uh, I am so infinitely beyond you, you're finite, I'm infinite, and so comparing God to human beings is not a very good comparison. You always end up bringing God down, right, uh, and dishonoring Him in some way. Well, having said that, the Bible does say that God created us in His, what, image, in His likeness, and guess what? My wife's going to love this. We have feelings and emotions. We do. As as human beings, we have feelings and emotions. In other words, there there are some ways that we are like God, right? There's a lot of ways that we're like God. Uh, And therefore, I think there are some ways that God is like us. If we are created in his image and his likeness, for example, based on what we're gonna to study tonight, God has, you ready for this? Feelings and emotions. Some of you might be having a hard time with that already, going, oh, okay, this is gonna be a good one. I'm gonna to have to listen carefully to make sure I this this guy's not teaching heresy, right? But the point is that Hosea here pictures The inward struggles of God as he replays the story of his people and he struggles with his own emotional attachment to his people. Like any loving parent, God wants to spoil his children, if you will, to do everything possible for them, right? Isn't that how you are as a parent? You love your kids, you want to do everything possible for them. Uh, But because God is holy and just, he knows he must discipline them for their refusal to obey him. And if you're having a hard time with this God has emotions thing, remember Jesus, who was God in a body, right? God in human flesh. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. And so there was Jesus expressing the the motherly heart, if you will, the motherly heart of God, the parent heart of God. Oh, that I would just love to Gather you up and, and protect you under my wings and be your provision and protection, but you didn't, you didn't want any of that. In fact, that, was, that, that statement was made when Jesus, uh, during his triumphant entry, right, uh, when he was coming into Jerusalem, he, he made that statement. In fact, it says in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, when he saw the city, he wept over it. And so this was a very emotional moment for Jesus. In fact, there's a, a a Catholic church, a, a monastery, if you will, on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, called the, uh, I guess they call it the Cathedral of Tears, um, because that it's really in the place where they imagine that Jesus wept as he looked over the city, and it was built in commemoration of this event in the life of Christ. But the point is that Jesus felt compassion. He felt compassion. He was angry. He was indignant, he was consumed with zeal, he was troubled, he was greatly distressed, he was sorrowful, he was deeply moved, he was grieved, he sighed, he wept, he groaned, he agonized, he rejoiced greatly and was full of joy, he longed and he loved. And I I would just say, I don't think we should just relegate that to his human side. That's not just the humanity of Christ, that's also the deity of of Christ. Now, we need to realize that we're treading on dangerous ground whenever we talk about God having feelings and emotions, okay? So I I admit that, and we have to be very careful how we understand this passage, Um, even to use the word that God struggles, right? God doesn't struggle right? Again, we're talking about God in what? Human terms, right? In human terms. Um, one book that I hope you never read. How's that? I'm always telling you a book that you should read, right? I'm telling you a book. This is one book you don't have to read. How's that? That's encouraging, right? Oh, there's, good. there's one I don't have to read. Um, it's called The Most Moved Mover by a man named Clark Pinnock, who's a Theologian, um, I would rather call him a heretic, because um, this is one of a number of books where he, I believe, just presents rank heresy, complete um, um, confusion and uh, misinterpretation and application of Scripture. Um, but this most move mover book is is probably his his most well known book. Where he uh, opens up this idea uh, or explains this idea of open theism, the openness of God, which is basically the, the belief that God doesn't know everything, okay? That God has left some things open, He's left some options open. In other words, God is not sovereign, right? He's not all knowing, uh, that He is like us, and that He, um, while He loves us and he, he wants us to have a relationship with us, he, he puts himself at risk by wanting to be in the relationship that it may be unrequited, that love may not be returned. And so he just has to sit there and wait to see what we're going to do. And, um, and so as, as, as we do things, he responds accordingly. Uh, it, it's, it's a very evil, satanic, um, um, theological movement uh, in a lot of seminaries and even some churches. It's called, again, open theism. Basically, that God changes according to circumstances, according to how you decide, how I decide, according to events in the world. God uh, kind of calls an audible as things, right, uh, change. And so the point is the title, The Most Moved Mover. And he uh, Pinnock appeals to verses like these in Hosea that, that show how God is moved with compassion, he He's moved with love and mercy and and so because he's a compassionate God, a god with emotion and feeling he's oftentimes moved by to 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 change in other words he actually he changes so he's the most moved mover and uh, he's moving along with everything else that's moving in the world in other words he's not the same he, he, he he's not uh, um, the, the the attribute of God we talk talk about that He He doesn't change, and so we need to know that if if we're not careful, we could take this too far, and and slip off into heresy. In fact, John Calvin. This is interesting. I was reading this today. John Calvin was so worried about any suggestion that God has feelings because God is unchangeable, right? And feelings, what? Change, right? Emotions change. That when he came to this section in his commentary series on Hosea, he said, quote, God is exempt from every passion. In other words, he went the exact opposite way and says God doesn't have any emotion because that would mean he could change. Um. And one commentator, I think, says it well. He says the reformer said this because he did not wish anyone to think of the Lord as one who changes his mind because of the pressures outside himself. In other words, that God cannot be pushed around, which is basically what Clark Pinnock has concluded, right? That uh, God changes his mind based on the pressures outside of himself. And then the commentator goes on and says this, although this is true, that God can't be pushed around and that God doesn't change based on pressures outside of himself. Hosea 11 teaches us that God does have deep feelings of love. And so somewhere there's a, there's a biblical perspective in this. And I think Hosea 11 provides us a window into the very heart of God and it reveals the depth of God's love for his people. And His love for us is endless. It's relentless. It's a love that never fails, never gives up, never runs out. It's a love that will never let us go. James Montgomery Boyce summarizes well what happens here starting in verse 11. He said, quote, beginning with this chapter and continuing to the end, a new emphasis on the sovereign and ultimately triumphant love of God can be found. The love of God has been present all along throughout the book of Hosea, but from chapters 4 through 10, the note of discipline and judgment predominate. That's basically what we've been hearing about, right? Is discipline and judgment and consequences for sin, and that's been the last month and a half or so, at least before Christmas, Is all we, that's all we've been hearing. Now, although judgment is still present, the emphasis falls on God's prevailing and unquenchable love. And so just to remind you of the outline, if you uh, grabbed one when you came in or maybe you kept it there in your Bible, you're following along, uh, two sections to the book of Hosea, Hosea's marriage, chapters 1 through Uh, 3, God uses the relationship between Hosea and Gomer as an example of of God's relationship with Israel, his unfaithful wife, and yet he continues to pursue her even though she continues to be unfaithful. That's Hosea's marriage, and then it leads into Hosea's message, and chapters 4 through 14 are all these sermons that Hosea preached under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the nation of Israel, the 10 northern tribes, also mentioning Judah, the two southern tribes along the way. And you could break up those last, this last section into three sections. Uh, Israel's indictment, chapters 4 through 7, Israel's judgment, chapters 8 through 10, and then you have Israel's reinstatement, chapters 11 And so in chapters 4 through 7, God accused Israel of sinning against him, and they deserved to be severely punished. Chapters 8 through 10, God pronounced that punishment, that it would come in the form of a foreign invasion and destruction by Assyria, and uh, they would be taken back into the same captivity which God had originally brought them out of from Egypt. Only this time, they would not be in bondage to Egypt, they'd be in bondage to who? Assyria, right? And so here we are now in the last four chapters, chapters 11 through 14, and Hosea returned to his earlier theme of Israel's restoration based on God's faithful covenant-keeping love even though they continued to persist in the rebellion against him. And so here in chapter 11, Hosea highlighted God's relentless love for Israel from three different perspectives. God showed his love for Israel in the past. He showed his love for Israel in the present. And he would show his love for Israel Israel in the future. And so that's going to frame our our discussion this evening. Just those three points. God's past love was shown through Israel's redemption. That's verses 1 through 4. God's present love was... Um, in verses five through seven would be shown through his retribution. That would be tough love, right? Punishing love, disciplining love. And then God's future love would be demonstrated by restoration. That's verses eight through 11. And so let's look at these three ways that God showed his love to the nation of Israel. First of all, God's love for them in the past was demonstrated through Redemption. And we know that the first part of Hosea, or in the first part of Hosea, God likened Israel to his unfaithful wife, um, who had cheated on him time and time again, and yet he continued to love her dearly. Now, here in chapter 11, he likens Israel to his ungrateful son. She's no longer an ungrateful wife, or uh, I should say an unfaithful wife, now now they're an ungrateful son who had rebelled against him time and time again, and yet he continued to love him deeply. Notice verse one, when Israel was a youth, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. So God showed his love for Israel by adopting them as His son and delivering them out of bondage to Egypt and carrying them. Him through the wilderness, if you will, carrying them through the wilderness like a father would a son. Listen to some of the expressions of this uh, earlier on in the in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter four, this was the message that God told Moses to give to Pharaoh. Uh, the old "Let my people go" talk, right? Speech. Exodus chapter four, verse twenty-two. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Of course, that was the final plague, right? The Passover the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, the angel of death came and passed over the, the, the firstborn of Israel, the, the homes of the Israelites, but all the firstborn of Egypt were killed. But the point is, God likened Israel to his son, his firstborn son. Uh, listen to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1, as Moses reiterated the law, um, to the people of Israel, the new generation, before they went into the promised land, a little pep talk, right? Reminding them of who they were and what they were, all, they were to be about. Deuteronomy chapter one, verse 31. He says, In the wilderness, remember where you saw how the Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. But for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God. And then look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is, I think, the best passage in, in the whole Old Testament about God's sovereign love, sovereign choice. If you have a problem with the doctrine of election in the New Testament, um, all you need to do is go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and see the, the, the doctrine of election in the Old Testament. And I don't think anyone argues the point that God sovereignly chose a nation of Israel out of all the nations of the world to be his people. Nobody argues that. You're like, yeah, that's, oh, that's old, old news. Why do we have such a hard time that God chose right certain believers right out of all the other people in the world to be his chosen people? Same principle. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, notice what he says. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples. There I didn't pick you because you were the biggest nation out there. In fact, you were the smallest nation. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. So the bottom line, God is, uh, Moses is reminding the people, hey, you know what, don't forget, God loved you just because he loved you. It wasn't based on any loveliness in yourself. Nothing in, there was nothing in you that attracted God to you, that drew you to him and caught his attention. No, he just chose to love you, Period. And, you know, that same principle applies to us as Christians. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul was writing to the believers in in the church in Ephesus. Listen to what he said. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, In other words, before we had done anything, right, to earn his approval, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us, predetermined that we would be his sons. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his, what? Grace. What is grace? Grace getting what you don't deserve, right? Undeserved, unmerited kindness and favor of God. It's the sovereign grace of God in our salvation. And that's really the point that Hosea is making or God's making here in Hosea chapter one. Hey, listen, I called you out of Egypt to be my chosen people. But notice how they responded. Verse two, the more they called them, and I think the more they called them Uh, is a reference to the prophets that God had sent to the nation of Israel. The more that they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. And so in spite of the amazing, I mean truly amazing love, the, the, the undeserved, unmerited love of God that he showed towards the nation of Israel, they turned away from him And adopted the ways of the Canaanites and worshiped other gods, even to the point where they were worshiping Baal. They were sacrificing to Baal, burning incense to idols. And again, this has become the theme of Hosea, right? Spiritual adultery is what God likened idolatry to. It's like you're cheating on me, right? I'm your God, and you're having an affair with some other God. That's spiritual adultery. And so the point is, the more he loved them, the more they rebelled against him. I mean, that's just tragic. It's the tragic story of the nation of Israel. The the more he loved them, the, the harder he pursued them, the faster they ran away from him. I mean, after all that God had done for them, they refused to return his love or obey his will. Sound familiar? <laughs> it sounds like us, doesn't it? I think all of us tend to, to do the same thing, that, that we're happy to enjoy God's blessings, right? We like the blessings, but we don't want to obey his commands. Notice he goes on talking about this father-son relationship, verse 3, yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim, again, the uh, the, the largest tribe of the 10 northern tribes, and so he's using that word to talk about the nation of Israel, the 10 northern tribes. He said, I, I, I taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. And so, again, God is likening himself to a, a tender, loving father who, who ta- taught his son how to walk, Right? And every time, you remember that, dads, right, as we were teaching our kids how to walk, every time they fell down what, and they hurt themselves, and they started to cry. What did we do? We ran over and we put them back up and we brushed them off. Maybe we even kissed their boo-boo, right, and uh, made it okay. And that was God. God was always there. No matter what happened to Israel, he was always there to kiss it and make it better. And yet they, continued, they, they, they rebelled against him. Talk about ingratitude, right? Every once in a while, I'll remind my kids that I changed their diapers. Okay? So you need to respect me, okay? Because if you saw what I saw, okay, and did what I did, okay, I earned your respect when, I was, when you were on the changing table, okay? Okay? <laughs> The point of the height of ingratitude after someone has served you, right, faithfully to go against them, to rebel against them, to dishonor them. This is what the nation of Israel is doing to God. Notice he changes the analogy, verse four. I led them with cords of a man with bonds of love and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws and I bent down and fed them. So he's no longer talking about father-son relationship, he's liking himself now to, to a kind, considerate master who treated his animal with care. He didn't, he didn't beat them to make them do what he wanted them to do. Yeah! You know, he's not leading them with, with cords of wrath. He's leading them with cords of, of love, if you will, reins of love. Um, and then he noticed, he says, he became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws... And I bent down and fed them. So if a farmer noticed uh, that the yoke was chafing on the ox as he was uh, treading out the grain and it was hard for him to eat, right? Because we talked about don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. Well, he's treading out the grain and, and the, and the yoke is on him and he can't, he can't get to the food. It's laborious to him. He would lift it up. A kind master would lift it up so he could be more comfortable. And at times, a gracious farmer might even bend down and feed the ox by hand. And again, this is another picture of how God dealt so lovingly and so gently and kindly with Israel in spite of their stubborn rebellion. They weren't that pliable, submissive ox just walking in a circle. Remember, what did they say? That they were a stubborn heifer, right? They were like a a wild bull, if you will, bucking Bronco, you know, kicking God off every chance they could, bucking him off. And so God just demonstrated extraordinary, condescending love and grace far beyond anything they could have expected, anything that they deserved. And is not that the same kind of love that God demonstrates towards us? Just amazing, extraordinary, condescending love and grace far beyond what we could have ever expected and far more than we ever deserved. And yet even though God has been so good and so kind and so gracious to love us and to forgive us for our sin, we so often turn our back on him and sin even more. This is just not about the nation of Israel. Let's just not use them as a punching bag and go, man, I'm, I'm so glad I wasn't them. I'm glad I'm not that guy. Guess what? We are that guy. and so we need to realize when we sin and again i think this will help us in our fight against sin that it's not so much that i can't sin because i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to disobey those commands and i might get punished right it's more how could i do this against such great love and and basically what when whenever we sin we're we're scorning this amazing love Warren Wiersbe said it this way. He said, only sin's horror explains how we can scorn such love. It just shows how horrific sin is that we would, we would do it even though we're sinning against love. God's great love. And so I think this picture of us as God's children, God's son, God's child is a good picture. Uh, it was... A, it was um, I think this was probably very shocking to the people of Israel when God likened himself to this because this was not the picture of God that he often shared in the Old Testament. This was a rare concept. We, we know it well as New Testament believers because Jesus made that clear to us, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. God wants us to have that relation, kind of relationship with him. And so I think if we, if we remember that we're sons, right, not slaves, um, that may help us in our fight against sin. Well, that's how God showed His love to Israel in the past through their redemption, uh, their deliverance from the nation of Israel, even though they spurned it anyway. Secondly, we see God's present love in their retribution, and again, this is um, the same thing we've heard again and again throughout the Hosea's prophecy, chapter verse five: They will not return to the land of Egypt. But Assyria, he will be their king because they refuse to return to me. The sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me, though though they call them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. And So instead of listening and responding to all the prophets who God sent to them to call them back to him, Hosea being one of them, they chose to keep on sinning, and because they refused to repent of their sin and turn back to God, they would return to bondage. And again, not to Egypt, right? E- Egypt was just kind of the prototype, if you will, of bondage. What, what does that look like for Egypt or Israel to be in bondage? Well, it looks, like it, it looks like Egypt, but God had some other nations that he was going to put them in bondage to, Assyria for Israel, Babylon for Judah. The point is, when he says here, the sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their councils. Talking about the Assyrian massacre, when Assyria would come and lay siege to the city and destroy the city, just ravage the city. Um, and ironically, Israel would be destroyed by the very nation that they had sought counsel and protection from. Instead of going to God, right, for their help, they went to Assyria, and God says, watch this. I'm going to use the very thing that you sought satisfaction from, that you sought security from, I'm going to use that against you. And we talked about that several sermons ago, how God will often use the very things, the sins that we pursue, right, the people that we try to find security in, the things we try to find security in. He'll use those very things to punish us, um, we talked about that codependency, remember? while well, we don't agree with that, that diagnosis of a codependent person that keeps going back to that abusive relationship over and over and over again. But it's, it's just ironic that if you continue to seek your security in that relationship, God will continue to use that relationship to pummel you to realize, okay, I can't find my security in that relationship. i got to find it in Christ. And so God shows his love was showing his love to Israel through retribution. And again, this was the tough love. I love you enough to discipline you, right? And then thirdly, we see God's future love. God's future love in how he was going to restore them. And verse 8 is where it starts getting good. You ready for this? Verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me, all my compassions are kindled. This is one of the strongest expressions of God's emotion found anywhere in the scriptures. Someone had said it this way, nowhere else in the Bible are we permitted to look into the anguish of God's heart as we are in this verse, Hosea 11, verse 8. And you say, what was going on here? Well, as God reflected on the severe judgment that he was about to bring on Israel as a judgment for their sin uh, and rebellion against him, his emotions came to the surface he says, my heart is turned over within me and all my passions are kindled. His emotions burst forth in, this, in, in the form of these rhetorical questions, all of which indicate that he could never and would never ultimately desert his people. How, how can I give you up, O Israel? How can I surrender you? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? And those two cities, by the way, Adma and Zeboim, were two cities that God destroyed in his anger and wrath along with Sodom and Gomorrah. And so th- what God is communicating here is his heart was torn. To think of making Israel desolate as these cities that stood as symbols of divine judgment and, 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 and he was just, he was conflicted. And so notice his, his compassion would temper his wrath. Look at verse nine. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Notice, he says, I will not execute my fierce anger. According to Jewish law, what was the punishment that was supposed to be uh, laid upon a rebellious son? who didn't honor and respect his parents. They were supposed to take him out, or turn him over to the elders of the city and take him outside the city and stone him to death, right? Deuteronomy chapter 21. That's what Israel deserved, to be killed, to be destroyed, to be put out of existence. And by the way, there was a number of occasions in the Old Testament where God said, that's it, I'm done with you guys. And Moses, don't worry, I'll wipe them out and I'll give you a whole new group of people, Right? And again, Moses appeals to God and says, oh God, don't do that. What will the Egyptians think? And again, those are problem passages. You're like, oh man, difficult to understand. Does that mean God changed his mind? Moses talked him out of doing it? Like God submitted to Moses? No. God had a plan, right? But he was being honest about how he felt, right? What he was thinking. So the thought of watching his son, his adopted son, Israel, be destroyed by Assyria was just overwhelming to God. It was overwhelming to him to think, I, how, could I, how could I let this happen to them? Now, this is important. Now, be very careful to listen to this next point because this is where we could get confused in our understanding of who God is. I don't think God is being a weak capitulating father who can't bring himself to do the dirty work of disciplining his rebellious son. That's not what's going on here. This is not the, oh, I just love him too much to spank him. Right? You know people are like that. Oh, I just, I could never spank my kid. I just love them too much. No, the Bible says you hate them if you don't spank them. And so God wasn't saying that he wouldn't punish Israel because he was going to punish Israel. He was simply saying that he wouldn't totally abandon them. And the point is that God wasn't changing his mind. Notice it says here, it's very clear, he says, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. In other words, God was making sure that everyone knew, hey, I'm not changing my mind here. I'm not going back on my word. In fact, uh, Numbers 23, verse 19 is important, verse at this point, Numbers 23, verse 19, it says this, God is not a man, same thing that he said in Hosea, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and, it, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? In other words, God doesn't change his mind. I mean, he was simply wanting his people to know that while they would be punished severely, he would be faithful to his covenant promises to them and eventually call them back from exile. And we know that based on the next two verses. Verse 10, They will walk after the Lord, He will roar like a lion, indeed he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. I think this is a prophecy that had both near fulfillment and has still far fulfillment to come. I think it's referring here to a to when the holy remnant of Israel returned to the promised land from Assyria, from Babylon. Um, But I think it's also a reference to when God will gather his people from all the nations, cleanse them of their sin, establish them permanently in their homeland of Israel where Jesus Christ will reign as their Messiah and their King. And there's an interesting little word here that helps us, I think, interpret it this way. Notice it says, As they will walk after the Lord, he will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west. Where were they being taken? To Assyria, which was, what? To the east. So why wouldn't he say they came back from the east if he was thinking about Assyria and even Babylon? I think there is some fulfillment there. But from the West, right? I think maybe an indication that he was talking about the unknown parts of the world, right? That this is talking about the millennial reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom, when 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 Christ will uh, regather the Jews from all the nations of the world, and and because nothing like this has happened any time in Israel's history. I mean, when Israel became a nation, yes, and many of the Jews came back to the homeland, right. But I think ultimately this fits best to understand as the millennial reign of Christ. And again, I think we need to keep in mind there's a couple covenants of God or promises of God. The whole point is God is faithful, right? God's faithful love. When we say God is faithful, we mean that he keeps his what? Promises, right? God's faithful. He keeps his promises, and so his promises were, were in the form of covenants, and he made a couple covenants, at least that we want to talk about for a second here. He, he made, first of all, the Abrahamic covenant. He made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And if you remember, that was what kind of promise? Was it a conditional promise or an unconditional promise? It was unconditional promise, right? In other words, it's, it's, it's not going to change no matter what. And, and the promise was that the nation of Israel would be preserved, would have a future, and, and, and would go on forever and ever and ever, right? And we know that it was unconditional it was because God put Abraham to sleep, right? And they, he, did, he wasn't even a part of that figure eight thing, right? He just came in that fiery pot, and God went through that figure eight, which was the customary way to make a, to make a covenant, a promise, was you cut an animal in half, and you both walk through the figure eight. And, and God just put Abraham to sleep and said, I'm going to do this myself. It was an unconditional promise for the future of Israel, that nothing could change. But then there was also the covenant or the promise that God made with his people at Mount Sinai. We call this the Mosaic Covenant, Genesis chapter 19 and 20. And was this a conditional promise or an unconditional promise? This was a conditional promise in that if the nation didn't keep their end of the bargain to obey the Ten Commandments, right, and all the other commands that he gave, that he would withdraw his blessing and he would remove them from the land. So the point is that God was, at the same time he was fulfilling the Mosaic covenant by saying, you guys did not honor and obey me, and therefore I'm going to remove you the blessing, and you're going to experience my cursing, and I'm going to remove you from the land. He's fulfilling. He's keeping his promise to the Mosaic covenant. He was also keeping his promise to the Abrahamic covenant saying, but guess what? I'm going to bring you back, and I'm going to restore you, and there's a future for Israel. And notice how it says here. I like this. It says they will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west. Made me think of uh, C.S. Lewis's lion, the witch in the wardrobe. Right, whenever Aslan roars throughout the the, 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 the land of the land of Narnia, right, it, it, it's calling his people. Right, calling those who are loyal to him. And so now God will, in the future, roar like a lion, and he will call his people to the land of Israel. He says, like the birds, right? Trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. So like these birds turn loose from their cages. It's almost like the, the homing pigeons, right? You, you, let, you let go of the homing pigeons, they're like, they know exactly where to go. They know, they know the way home. And, and, and the Israel, those who in, in the in the end times, they are going to know the way home, because the Spirit of God is going to work in their hearts. He's going to be bringing many of the Israelites to Christ, and and they're going to many Jews to Christ, and they're going to go back to their homeland. And it says he says they're going to settle in their houses. In other words, Israel will be their permanent place of residence. Now, I'm going to stop there because. Well, in most English translations, verse 12 is part of chapter 11. In the Hebrew Bible, verse 12 is part of chapter 12, okay? So we're going to save that for next time. But let's take a moment as we wrap up here to consider what all this means to us, okay? We've been talking about the nation of Israel, okay? And uh, don't check out yet because I think this is the best part of this whole Of this whole passage. Again, Derek Kidner, let me read for you what he says in his commentary. He says, No matter that the Lord may now seem wholly swayed by impulse and emotion. In other words, I know we're all thinking, Whoa, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with this picture of God here who seems swayed by impulse and emotion. He says, however, we are nearer to a true knowledge of him in such terms than in the bloodless definitions of theological philosophy. In other words, some of the ways we define God in our theology books, right, um, somehow remove God's, this aspect of God. He said this, elsewhere, Scripture takes ample care Of what such definitions seek to safeguard. In other words, we we don't ever we don't ever want to think that God changes, right? And there's plenty of verses in Scripture that safeguard that. We know God doesn't change, right? Um, He says, but it never. The Scripture never takes the warmth out of love, the fire out of anger, or the audacity out of grace. The whole point is this: grace, this love that God demonstrates to His people is audacious. It's are are you kidding me? I, I can't even grasp how how bold and extravagant that grace and that love is towards His people. And so, Kidner's point is: you know, we're getting a glimpse at God that we don't really get from anywhere else in Scripture. Now, we need to not just quickly gloss over this, but to really see this is an important aspect of God that we need to grasp, that we need to understand. I think um, other places in Scripture bring out at least the, the idea here of what's going on and really the tension that we feel here. Uh, Habakkuk, another Old Testament prophet, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2, the prophet said this In wrath, God remembers mercy. In wrath, God remembers mercy. That's what's going on right here. That in the midst of wrath, he's pouring out his wrath on his people because of their sin, he remembers mercy. It's a a merciful wrath if there's such a thing. How about Romans 11, verse 22? Paul talks about, behold, the kindness and the severity of God. So we see these two two attributes of God kind of uh, together here. Uh, James 2.13 talks about how mercy triumphs over judgment. Bible teacher Woodrow Kroll, some of you may listen to him on the radio, he said this, one of the great paradoxes of the Bible is God's compassionate practice of tempering judgment with mercy. And it's a paradox because God is determined to discipline his rebellious children, but he's torn because of his great love for us. And so the challenge in in God's heart, the challenge in some way in our hearts when we have to discipline our kids, is wanting to show love and punishment at the same time. That was the dilemma in my heart with my child on Friday night. I wanted to show love and forgiveness and grace and mercy, but at the same time, I felt there was need of punishment and consequences to teach them a lesson. And I was torn in my heart. And guess what? I'm a man. And that's an impossibility, right, for a man. And that's why we're encouraged when it says, for I am God and not a man. Hebrew, or excuse me, Hosea chapter 11, verse nine. I am God and not a man. In other words, he's able to do both at the same time. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. (laughs) But God has. Sin must and will be punished. But that's not all there is to God. God is a God of justice, but he's also a God of love who acts to spare his people. And despite our waywardness and our continual rebellion against God, in his love, he found a way to satisfy his justice and his mercy all at the same time and ultimately redeem his chosen people. And it was on that thing right there, the cross. Amen? It was at the cross. And I think the cross is the ultimate expression of God's wrath and at the same time the ultimate expression of his mercy. Because while he was pouring out his wrath on his son, he was pouring out his mercy on us, on sinners. And so he found a way to uphold his holiness and his justice by punishing sin while displaying love and mercy at the same time. Only in the wisdom of God, that he could remain holy, not compromise his holiness, not sacrifice his justice, but satisfy his holiness and satisfy his love all at the same time. It was through Christ, Romans 3 26, who is both the just and the justifier at the same time. G. Campbell Morgan, an old preacher from England, said this. He said, Through Christ, the glory of holiness is maintained, for his redemption of the human soul is not a pity that agrees to ignore sin, but a power that cancels it and sets it free from its dominion. I want to close by just reading for you the conclusion that James Montgomery Boyce comes to in his commentary on this chapter. I thought it was very profound. He said this, The gospel of Hosea, as we've called it, right? This is the gospel according to Hosea, is present in its fullness today. God is no less a God of justice. His wrath burns no less fiercely against our sin than it did against the sin of Israel. But God has shown where that wrath is quenched. It's quenched in Christ, and He has commanded those who are yet in their sins, if you're still in your sins, to turn to faith in the Savior. Will you not turn to Him? There is nothing in you that can possibly commend you to God, not your works, not your character, not even your repentance or faith. God's choice is apart from human merit. Therefore, salvation is to be received as a free gift through Christ, and it is in Christ alone, crucified, dead, buried, and risen again, that you will find it. If you have never come to Him, come now, And say, Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to be my Savior, and I now turn from sin to follow you. If you've already believed, but have been drifting away from the Lord, hear as he calls after you and come trembling back to him tonight. And he will receive you again. He will settle you in your true spiritual home. It's the gospel according to to Hosea. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and just how profound it is in some of the most uncanny places tucked away in the Old Testament, we find your gospel once again proclaimed in Christ. And Lord, we know that how we respond to you and and this message tonight Will really determine the side of you that we experience, whether we experience your justice or we in your wrath, or we, if we experience your mercy and your love. And Lord, I pray that all of us would know the the joy and the peace of that uh, obedient child that's able to snuggle up to their loving father, because we're right with Him. We're right with you. Lord, may None of us have to experience the, the judgment, the punishment that that rebellious child has to deal with, getting spanked because of our disobedience to you. Lord, thank you that you did not compromise your holiness and you didn't just punt your love either. You found a way to satisfy both parts of you. At the cross, and I pray that it would just make us lovers of Christ, and that we would just come to the foot of the cross and just be overwhelmed with joy and with gratitude, thanksgiving, praise and wonder and awe at what you were able to accomplish at the cross on our behalf, and that it would just motivate us to want to live for you and to honor you and to glorify you and to not sin against you, but to obey you and to love you back, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.